All right, if you want to grab your Bible and meet me in Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, if you uh, grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in this morning, you don't own a Bible, uh, we want you to keep it uh, if you grab that one. Uh, there was probably a Bible reading plan that was slipped in there, or if there wasn't, there's one at the Connect table for you, and I just want to challenge you. If you've never read the Bible before, if you're new to following Jesus, um, uh, this is a great place to start. Just open up your Bible, pick up the plan right where it's at. Uh, it's really easy. Um, I do this every day, like myself. Chapter in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament will help you see Jesus in and through his word. So uh, Genesis chapter 28, here we go. Let's start in verse 1, and it'll also come up on the screens for us. Genesis 28, verse 1 says this. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Badan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May you give the blessing of Abraham to you, and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife uh, from there, and that he blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. You know, Isaac's got a thing about these Canaanite women, right? And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. All right, we'll stop right there for now. Now, if you're new, uh, jumping in with us here in this series in Genesis, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I thought my family had problems. Um, right now, we find ourselves in this story with Jacob. He's running away, sent by his mother and father away, because your, your brother, his brother is so mad at him that he's literally trying to kill him. He's literally like whittling his knife in public, saying like, just, just wait, man, wait until dad dies. I'm going to straight up murder you. Like, that's the situation going on right now. This family's going to need a lot more than just some group therapy time. And so if, if you're new to following Jesus and you're, like, new to the Bible, and you thought that the Bible was, was filled with just stories of people that had their act together and that were really holy and, you know, it really did all the right things, or maybe it's just a book filled of, you know, fairy tales with good moral things in it, well, welcome to the Bible. It's, it's filled with a whole bunch of dirty sinners with really messed up, crazy stories See, I assume most Bible stories growing up were kind of like an episode of Andy Griffith. You know, there was kind of like this conflict or something that happened, but no one was really going to get hurt, and at the end there was like this good moral lesson. But the Bible's way more like the episode of, of Jerry Springer than it is the Andy Griffith, okay? Uh, the further we get into the stories of Genesis, the more we're going to see this is the kind of common answer. So here, here's a, a quick recap uh, of last week if you weren't here. Isaac... He's been established as the son of the promise. He's now the father, proud father of two baby boys. The problem is, though, 
He's got a favorite, um, but God has already told and given this prophecy that one is the younger is going to serve the older. Uh, I've got two boys, and, and my boys are always trying to like clamor for my attention. They're trying to always outdo one another, fight each other, uh, or just kind of be uh, fight for my own attention as a father. And uh, Isaac has a clear favorite here, and his clear favorite is Esau. Esau's a man's man. You know, he's probably big and muscly. You know, he's described like a Wookiee. He's covered in hair. He likes to go hunting. You know, I'm a, I'm a redneck at heart, so I would have probably hung out with this guy. You know, like, just to be honest. But the, uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, also has her own favorite. And she has a scheme for getting Isaac to pronounce the blessing on her favorite son, Jacob. So last week, we saw that Jacob dresses up like a Wookiee to go for, fool his blind old dad and so he gets all, you know, covered up with things, but he providentially gets the blessing that God already preordained. Esau gets wise to what's happened, and so he begs his father for whatever blessing's left, and the, the, the quote, blessing that Esau gets there sounds way more like a curse. It's basically like, hey, you're going to be a slave to your little brother. Now, that'd be bad news for anybody, but just imagine being the big brother and if you grew up with siblings, imagine getting a, a message from your dad that's, you know, from God saying your life is going to be really hard, it's going to kind of suck, and you're going to be a slave to your brother. It might be a little easy to see why Esau is so angry here, why he's, you know, sitting in the corner just biding his time waiting to try to murder his brother. In fact, Esau is so angry that he has said it out loud, and this is where we find ourselves in the story. Now, if you've followed the narrative flow of, uh, of Genesis so far, and in this particular story of Isaac and Jacob, uh, you might guess what happens next. This is Mama to the rescue. Rebecca has a game plan for Jacob to escape his murderous brother, and that's where we find ourselves today. And so this text today is going to have three main movements for us. First, we're going to see Jacob's escape in verses 1 through 9. Second, we're going to see Jacob's dream 10 through 15, and then finally Jacob's response to that dream in verses 16 through 22. And so by the time we get to the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 28 that we've already read, Rebekah has obviously either tricked Isaac or convinced him to send Jacob to her homeland to find him for himself a wife. And the trickery in this, in this uh, stories about Jacob and in the life about Jacob is a theme that we'll see again and again and again. There's always this deceit. There's always something going on. And the, the story keeps playing on itself again and again. And everyone in his family is a swindler. It's like their family job is like used car salesmen. You know, like that's the, everyone is just trying out and trying to deceive one another again and again and again. See, the Bible is showing us I think through all of these stories that we don't ever get to sin in a vacuum. Sin always has consequences. Some of those consequences are relational. Some of them are physical consequences. Some of those are emotional. There's always spiritual consequences for sin with God. We've seen this. Remember back to the story of Isaac and Rebekah, where Isaac plays out the sin of his father Abraham, and he gives up Rebekah, tells him, hey, she's my sister, and because of that, not only puts her in real danger, but also it fractures their relationship. It, it, it's going to send fracture points throughout their relationship. There's distrust on both sides here. 
See, when we see human deceit and sin and drama, both in the Bible and in our, in our own lives and with one another, it should never be surprising. Sin's never surprising. It actually seems to be what we as humans are like really, really good at, is sinning. But what is surprising is that when all the messes that we make turn out to serve the divine purposes of God, that, that's grace. And that's what this family shows, that God's will cannot be thwarted even as they and we act like a bunch of jackwagons all the time. So we get to the beginning of chapter 28, and we have good old blind old Isaac. You know, he's kind of acting like a decrepit old man a little bit, right? So you can imagine him putting out of his tent and talking to, uh, to Jacob and says, you know, as the senile, senile old man, you know, he speaks better than he knows. He says to Jacob exactly what's about to happen to him. He speaks even prophetically. He, you know, he tells them about warning uh, against marrying a Canaanite wife, but he actually acknowledges the blessing of God on Jacob. He acknowledges that this blessing has flown to him. But then he tells him to go to Laban. And what's amazing about Isaac's words is they really are prophetic. Jacob is not going to take a wife from there. He is going to be confirmed as the true blessed one of God, and he is going to continue on his journey to Laban. See, through this, I think many of us can like grab on to a truth that we could immediately apply to ourselves, because how often has it been when someone has used someone unlikely in our lives to speak prophetically to us, to speak a word of, they, 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 speak, they spoke better than they knew to us in that moment, and so I think letting ourselves see ourselves in the story a little bit right here is actually appropriate. I think that for many of us, I would say most of us, have strained relationships with our family. See, conversations with your, your dad or your mom or your aunts or your uncles, some of those can be really tough. Where trust has been broken, you don't feel seen, you, you may feel alone, you may be rejected, you may feel like you're on the run like Jacob's about to be. I want you to know that God is with you. He sees you. He's, he's there with you in that struggle, even though you may not feel like it. Maybe you don't even see him there. We're going to see that God really is there. See, in this interaction between Jacob, he, he is the rejected son, and Isaac, the deceived father, he speaks a word of blessing on him and speaks better than he knows. See, even though our family relationships might be a mess, God can choose to speak to us through them. And like this story with Jacob, God will often show his protection and his provision in the midst of that relational chaos when we don't see it at the time. Let's look back at the text, though, in an unlikely place in verses 6 through 9, this little short story about Esau. I'm going to read those words again for us right quick. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and he sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife for him there, and he blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother, and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women, his wives, did not please Isaac his father, he went to Ishmael and took as his wife, beside the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of of Neboth. Verses 6 through 9, I was kind of perplexed in my study as to why these are here. Why are we told this little bit about Esau? 
We're told that he sees that Jacob pleases his father about being obedient. And what does Esau do? He goes and gets himself another wife. Now, I don't think we should all think in here, okay, you know, let's go all go get ourselves another wife, men in the room. That's not the application point where we should all think. Nope, 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 don't do that. That's not where we should go. But at least Esau this time uh, doesn't get another Canaanite wife. She's an Ishmaelite. He's the, she's the daughter of his half-brother, Ishmael, of Isaac's half-brother. So uh, I'll tell you where I've landed on this. I'm tr- the, the question I want to ask is like, why, what are we supposed to think here? Or are we supposed to think about this short little story here? And so, even though I don't think we're explicitly told what to believe about this action, I think we're meant to ask the question, is this a step for Esau towards cooling down and him doing better here? Or is this basically him giving his dad the middle finger by going and marrying the wife of his half-brother? I'll tell you where I've landed here. I think if we assume for a moment that if, if this is where Esau's trying to do better, we still need to ask a further question, is this action taken in faith? And I think we could confidence, confidently say no. See, Esau, I think, is more like the high school jock who can't stand finishing in second place, and so he overcompensates in everything else. You know this guy. You went to school with this guy. Maybe you were this guy. I'm sorry. I was definitely not this guy. <laughs> So Esau is either trying to gain the approval of his father by taking this wife, which is unlikely, or he's showing his outright disdain for him, which seems more likely. But maybe think about it like this. Esau now is united with Ishmael, the son of Abraham, who was not the son of the promise, the rejected son. And now Jacob has even been confirmed by Isaac himself that Jacob is the new son of the promise. See, rejection now flows from Ishmael to Esau, and blessing now flows from Abraham to Isaac and now Jacob. So this son of the promise now, Jacob, is running for his life from the rejected son Esau. He's trying to do whatever he can to please his father. He's stuck with the sun setting in the middle of nowhere, and Jacob... It's probably not feeling so blessed and highly favored right now, even though he is the son of the promise. Let's pick up the story in verses 10 through 17 and see Jacob's dream. Jacob left Beersheba, went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of that place. He put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder or a flight of steps set up on the earth, and on the top of it, it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I'll give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you all of the offspring shall the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the, son, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
Now, I know this passage, for many of us that grew up in the church, may be familiar. You remember the flannel graph, you remember the little ladder with the angels on it or something like that. That was my favorite day in Sunday school, because they said my name a lot. My name is Jacob. And so I was like, yeah, I got a ladder at home. It's pretty great, you know? So, but put yourself for, for a moment in Jacob's shoes just before this amazing dream. His family's a mess. His brother is trying to kill him. He's running away. He literally has nothing with him. I mean, he, all he has for a pillow is a rock. I mean, you're in a pretty bad spot when the only thing you lay your head down on is a rock. This guy's got nothing. He's in the middle of nowhere. In this passage, that word place is said again and again and again, like emphasizing he is in the middle of nowhere. Like the place, the place, the place, the place. It's again and again and again. He doesn't know where he's at. He really has no hope other than getting to his uncle's house to get this wife. Seems like if he is the son of the promise, like where is God in this moment? But it's in the middle of nowhere when he's not looking for God. This is precisely when God reveals himself to him. And so Jacob dreams. He sees this giant staircase. I know in the text there it says a ladder, but I think the better picture for our minds is a giant staircase, a stairway to heaven, if you will, right? Yeah, Led Zeppelin got it right. See, he sees the stairway into heaven, and I imagine that what would be helpful for us to imagine is like a huge pyramid with a set of stairs extending into the clouds all the way up into heaven. And what does he see? He sees angels ascending up and down those stairs. And I want us to remember that angels in the story of Genesis so far are not the pudgy little things with like the harps or the bows or something like that, the cupids that you see on cards. Angels are terrifying. Like angels come and do the will of God. Remember the first angel we see in the Bible? It's the one that's set at the gate um, of, of Eden with a flaming sword to protect those that might dare enter. Like angels are terrifying. Angels are the ones who nuked Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels are absolutely terrifying. And these angels are ascending and descending this ladder into heaven. And at the climax of this scene, God is there. Not just angels, not just a stairway to heaven. God is there. In Hebrew, this text is meant to be read like this. There, a ladder. Oh, angels. And look, the Lord himself. It's emphatic. So God Almighty appears to Jacob, and what does he say? You know, the, the whole climax of the text is this. What does God say? Does he scold him for his deceit? He just duped his whole family. His, his brother is rightly angry at him. Does he rebuke him for duping his blind old father? No, there's no hint of disdain in the voice of God to Jacob. He speaks to him like he is righteous. He pronounces to Jacob the undeserved promise of blessing and his own presence with him. And notice how God approaches Jacob as well. Look, look at verse 13. There's a footnote in the ESV if you're looking. In, in most of your translations, there'll be a footnote down there where it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it. That meaning the stairway to heaven, this big staircase. If you look down at your footnote, it also says this. 
or beside him. So the mental picture that we're supposed to get, because the word can be translated both ways, is if we're to ask the question, where is God? He's at the top. He's standing in the heavens. He's the creator of all things, speaking from the clouds. He's also the God who's here. He's with us. He's right beside us. He's willing to come down to Jacob's level and speak to him face to face. See, when we read this story, the writer of Genesis is actually banking on on us thinking about that other tower. Remember that other tower that extended into the heavens just a couple chapters ago in Genesis? The tower of what? Babel, right? Yeah, we know this one. Oh yeah, all those Sunday school lessons are coming back, right? The Tower of Babel was the human stairway that it went into heaven that mankind built as a monument to their pride. As a monument to say, look what we can do. Look at us. We're going to be like God ourselves. Mankind thought that they could become like God and ascend into heaven themselves. And this is where the similarity stops with the stairway to heaven. One commentary said it like this. Unlike Babel, God's messengers, not pride, go up and down this structure. And remember, who is this being revealed to? Is he worthy to see this staircase, this stairway to heaven? Just think about what's happening here. The the, the veil between the, the spiritual and the physical is being torn for a moment, and Jacob is given this sight into what's going on really in this nowhere place. In the middle of nowhere, God is revealing himself. God is showing that he's bringing together this heaven and earth. And Jacob, is he worthy to see this? No. This is Jacob, the deceitful liar. This is Jacob, uh, he's the worst. He certainly doesn't deserve to see anything like this. What this story is showing us, and what we need to see ourselves, is that God reveals himself like this, is an act of undeserved mercy. It is a display of God's willingness to show his grace to those who don't deserve it. See, God is not just talking to us from the top of a divine ladder into the heavens. He is right here beside us as well. See, we, here in this place, and in this nowhere place, if you will, think of how many people have you talked to if you're new to Fayetteville? Say, Fayetteville's nowhere, man. Like Fayetteville, you, no one wants to be there. It's nowhere. You've you got to wait till you get to a better pl- base, a better a place that you could go, a bigger city, another other place. God is here. And he's not just speaking to us from the heavens. He's here with us in this place. How much confidence should that give us to go to our our, our, our King and our God, that He's right here with us. He's willing to be with us. It should actually call us to respond and change the way that we respond to this God. See, this story doesn't end with Jacob's vision from God. We are also shown Jacob's response. Let's pick it back in verse 16 again, and we'll finish out the chapter together. Verse 16 reads like this. Then Jacob awoke awoke from the place and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, his little rock pillow, 
and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But this name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will just give me bread and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. See, in these last verses, we see Jacob's response. We see Jacob beginning to take the first baby steps of worshiping God. He makes a vow. He, he worships. He, he sets up this pillar. And so let's look at those things kind of in order. The worship, the, the pillar, then the vow. His first act of worship is his, actually his confession. He confesses first his ignorance, right? The Lord is here in this place and I didn't know it. He actually, the way it reads in Hebrew is like him kind of, like it's a dig at his own self. He's like, man, I should have known, but I didn't know that God really is in his place. Look at verse 16 again. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. See, in our worship of God, we not only confess what we don't know when we engage with God, but we confess what's true, right? There's this confession of our own unworthiness, the things that we don't know. And when we come and worship before God, we sing songs like, Lord, I need you. Like, like we confess our own sin before God, but then we also confess what's true about God as well. And this is what Jacob does. He says, not only the Lord's in this place, and I didn't know it, but he also says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. He confesses the Lord is in this place. This place is awesome. This is a holy place, this nowhere place where he is, and this is the gate of heaven. This is the place where you can engage the God of the universe. And then what does Jacob do next? Sounds pretty strange to us, but he sets up a pillar. He pours oil on it. Now, this would have been really common practice for his day and age, right? This would be like the equivalent of him like making a plaque and putting it on the wall, or like building some other structure that's to commemorate it, like a, a giant statue or something. You know, we do this all the time to commemorate things. We make placards and give them to people that most of them just kind of like, oh, that's nice, and we kind of throw them away. But some people are more serious, right? Something really significant happens to you. Like a lot of times, nowadays, you get a tattoo to commemorate the thing. I'm going to remember this thing forever. You know, whatever that thing is. I'm pretty redneck, and so I like carve things into trees because I'm sitting in a deer stand or something. I can actually go back to the, the, the deer stands that I, I hunted in high school and through college and stuff like that, see different things that I carved in those trees at the time. And so it would commemorate whatever that thing that I was really into at the time, and some of those I'm ashamed of, and some of them I'm still cool with. But anyways, at that time, they commemorated something in that moment. This is what Jacob is doing here. He's commemorating this place. He even renames the city from Luz to Bethel. You know what Bethel means? It means God's house. Beth is, means house. El is a, a name for God. So this is a, he says, this is God's house. I kind of wonder, though, like, what did the other people in that city think about that? Like, him just kind of renaming the city all by, by himself. But that's another thing. At the end of it, he, though, he makes a vow. When we come to this vow, it starts looking a little problematic. Let's pick it up in verse 20 again. 
Verse 20, he says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come into my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. The stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. So there's a lot of good in this. Like, you know, this is the commemorate. He's like, I'm going to tithe in my worship to God. I'm going to give everything I got, a full tenth to you, God. But it seems like he's starting to kind of believe the promises of God, but he's adding conditions here. Seems like an if-then statement. Is Jacob fumbling the ball on the, you know, the one-yard line here? Like, is Jacob getting all the way down to the, the goal line and saying, like, okay, I'm going to fully follow you, God. I've seen this incredible experience. And then he just kind of fumbles it right there. Is he like the kid saying, like, if I eat my broccoli, then I can have a bowl of ice cream? Is, is he putting conditions here? Now, if he really is doing this, this is a, uh, he is to be a, this is a cautionary tale about Jacob. Like, you do not get to put conditions on, hey, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. That we are not allowed to do that. But I really don't think that's what's happening here. There's commentaries are split on this. Some people think it's a, hey, Jacob really did blow it here and by saying a statement like this. And others tend to think it's, it, it tends to be our, our reading of the Hebrew and our translations make it sound like he's putting these conditions here. But really, it's just not all there. And let me tell you why I think this. Jacob, on the whole, is a complete mess. But in this moment, Jacob doesn't seem like a swindler trying to squeeze more out of God here. What is he even asking of God here? He is asking for the bare minimum. God is promising him, like, I'm going to bless your offspring. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going I'm I'm to be with you forever. I'm, I'm going to see it through to fulfillment. We're even told that in verse 15. It says, behold, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. This is God saying again, 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 this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. It doesn't sound like Jacob's trying to twist God's arm here. It's like he has the first baby seeds of faith saying, okay, man, if, if, if you'll just keep me alive, if I don't starve in the middle of nowhere out here, but you just give me clothes so I don't freeze to death in the middle of this desert during the night. If I just make it back home, it seems like what Jacob is saying here. But either way the story goes, it stands to show us that God won't bless us because we're trying to twist his arm. We don't get to put conditions on God's blessing. God chooses, blesses, and reveals himself to the unworthy because of his grace alone. This is what this story has been building to this whole time and showing us again and again and again. There are no magic formulas to come to God. There's no magic formulas to gain this blessing. So whether you're a follower of Jesus here or not, we all, all of us, we all act like sometimes that there's this magic formula. If I can just pray the right prayer, if I can ask it the right way, if I get my life together to do this thing, then God will bless me. I'll get the thing that I want. I'll be in the place I think I deserve. Or even worse, we believe 
that it's what we do that changes our conditions before God. Changes the way God sees us. So how do we obtain this blessing of God? How do we participate in this promise of God like Jacob? Do we need to go find that pillar that he set up in Bethel? Do we need to try to marry into the family like Esau? Now, one of the reasons I I trust the Bible and one of the reasons I follow Jesus is I've I've found his word is trustworthy and sufficient and true. See, uh, most of the time, the, the answers that I have and the questions that are buzzing around my brain get answered by the words of Jesus. There's a story in the New Testament that Jesus tells that Jesus was a man who claimed that he was the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was actually through him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed like God promised. We're told this short story in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, there's this man named Nathaniel, and he's an Israelite. And Jesus tells him, hey, I saw you under a fig tree I'm calling you to myself. And the, the actual response from Nathaniel in that, he says, he, he claims Jesus is God. He, he says, you are the king of Israel. You are the fulfillment of the promise. He immediately confesses truth about Jesus. And in that story, Jesus shares these amazing words from John uh, chapter 1, verse 51. Jesus says these words. Truly, truly, like listen up. I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on a pillar? Giant staircase? No, the Son of Man. Jesus claims that he is the stairway. He is the meeting place between heaven and earth. Friends, this morning, the way that we engage with this, the way that we are welcomed in to see this meeting place of heaven and earth is by gazing upon Christ, seeing his atoning work of dying on a Roman execution cross in our place. That is where we see the heavens open to us. This is where we get a peek behind the veil to see what's really going on in all of the world. There's no need for us to go to a holy place. There's no need for us to try to conjure up some magic words. We only need to fix our hearts to gaze upon what Jesus has already done for us, being crucified on a cross, and we will be forever changed. We will be. It's at the cross that we're granted new life and blessing in God. At the cross, we get our sins forgiven, the greatest blessing we could ever receive. Beyond that, we get a new identity given to us as the beloved of God. You may feel rejected like Jacob, but you get invited into a new family in Jesus. You get it. No longer are we solely defined by what we have done, either good or bad, like Jesus. We know we, I mean, like Jacob, we know we're all sinners. We know we only come to this thing broken and messed up. When we believe in the work of Jesus, we gain his righteousness as our own and God's very spirit to empower us to love and good works. Like, we get it all in Jesus. He is the meeting place. He is the stairway into heaven. And the angels of God both ascend and descend upon him. And remember, he's the one who stands at the top of that ladder. He's the one who's standing right beside you. He speaks these very words of of gentle kindness and grace to you. 
so Jacob's story could be our own. See, sometimes I think we tend to get to points like this in the sermon, and you know, we're like, yes and amen, and that's good and right and godly, but I think we tend to rush past the ways that there's specific application for us as a church body, because there are global truths that are always true that we preach through the scriptures like this. What, what's God saying to us, Veritas? What's God saying to us as a collective body here, in this room, gathered here, on mission here together? I think God is calling us to two things. One is to receive, receive, and believe the grandeur of God's blessing for you. And two, remember God's grace in your life and tell it to others. See, when God blesses Jacob, it was anything but small. There's a grand scope a global blessing, the gift of the entire land to his offspring. But when Jacob's making his vow, he's, he's concerned about not starving, right? And just getting back home, I'm concerned that there are many of us, and there's actually too few of us, that actually allow ourselves to believe the grandeur of God's promises to us through Christ. To allow those truths to kind of press their way into our heart that we really believe it. Follower of Jesus in this room, you are beloved by God. Nothing can change it. That is a grand, just all-encompassing truth, but so often we reject it and think that there's this conditional thing between us and God. It's about us getting it right all the time. No, that is lies. Allow yourselves to believe the grandeur of God's promise. You are God's beloved. You have an eternal inheritance sealed by God's own spirit. Christian here, do you believe you have the spirit of God living inside of you? Do you? Are you allowing yourself to believe that? You've really been made new. That those past choices, they don't define you anymore. Those are gone. You're a new creation in Christ. Allow yourself to believe the grandeur of God's promise. You are fully loved by God. You've been given gifts, and we have power over sin because, and death because of what Jesus has done. I'm convinced that so many of us, and myself included, my struggle with sin is that I don't, it's not that I don't believe Jesus died for me. It's that I don't believe he's blessed me and empowered me to say no to sin and yes to Jesus, like all the time. It's in those moments of doubt and struggle, remember again, follower of Jesus, God is with you. It may not feel like it. it, might feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Jesus is with you there. And second, remember God's grace in your life and tell it to others. Uh, we've been trying to do this and in, in empowering our community group leaders to encourage the sharing of stories, testimonies, ways that God has blessed you or kept you in, in community groups. And so, just like Jacob, I was in my study this past week thinking, he could have kept this story all to himself, and it would have been fine. We already knew he was the son of the promise. We already knew that God had placed his blessing upon him because of what Isaac had done. He had to tell this story for them to write it down. He had to share this, and in this story... Just like Jacob, we can look back in our own lives and see times where God revealed himself to us, met us, saved us, and we had no idea it was coming. We weren't looking for it. We felt like we were in the middle of nowhere, but God showed up anyways. 
See, all of us have a story to share of God's grace in your own life. And you need to hear, no matter what your story is, it's important. God wants to use it. God wants to empower you to tell your story so that others may be encouraged by it. It's actually a major way other people come to follow Jesus is just hearing about what God's done in your life. Don't rob others of, the, of, of what may be done through those words by your feelings of, oh, I can't speak well, or I, I, I don't know how to communicate my story well enough. No, God's got you, man. Like, you've got the Spirit of God, remember? Like, living in you right now, He can empower you to speak in ways that, that bring others to faith and encourage others in ways that they need. So, follower of Jesus, believe this. Your story, like Jacob's, matters, no matter what it is. It is important, and it's been given for you to share with others. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we move into this time of response together, we might remember the goodness that you've shown to us through our own stories. How many stories are there in this room of being rescued from the grip of sin in our lives? How many of us could stand up here on this stage and tell us countless stories of the ways that you've kept us from things in our own life, that you've redeemed us from things that were, were crushing us. And you revealed yourself to us in times when we weren't even looking for you. That you, you blew us away by the, the might and power of your presence in just a moment. And God, may we be humbled by, by the, the circumstances that brought those things about, that it, it wasn't a special place where we were. It wasn't special words that we said. It was nothing in our own power. God, you revealed yourself to us, and you saved us and brought us into your family. God, may we be freshly aware of the stories that you've given us. May we be freshly aware of your presence with us right here, right now, in this room. And God, I pray, may it change us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.